0: Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious
1: Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 18th episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Touching the Soul, Musical and Psychoanalytical Listening. With me is Roger Kennedy, the author of The Power of Music, Psychoanalytic Explorations. The book is published by Phoenix Publishing House. Roger was an NHS consultant child psychiatrist for 30 years at the Castle Hospital Family Unit. He is now at the Child and Family Practice London. He is a trained analyst and past president of the British Psychoanalytical Society. The Power of Music is his 14th book. Roger, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Wonderful. So let's just help listeners out. Let's start with a kind of a recap or top-line summary of what the power of music is all about.
0: Well, the book explores, um, with the help of my experience as a music lover, but also as a psychoanalyst, um, some of the ways one can understand how music affects us as we listen to it. Uh, What is it about music um, that affects us so powerfully and profoundly at a deep level in many ways and cognitively and bodily. Um, So it's a deep emotional as well as an intellectual level. So that's puzzled me for some years. And the book is an attempt to try and to look at this mystery, although I do say at the very end of the book that the mystery remains. So I don't have the total answer. (laughs) I try to look at The nature of music and its power on us from a variety of perspectives, both from an analyst, from biology, neuroscience, from musicology, uh, evolution, and emotion studies, and my clinical experience, and and try to bring it together in some way, um, try and give a few answers and a few suggestions for the future.
1: Okay, we'll be chasing down some of these avenues, I'm sure. But just out of curiosity, I respect the fact that it'd be hard to answer the question definitively why music is so emotionally powerful. But what would be some of the you know reasonings, uh, you know, lines of explanation for why it does have that power? Well,
0: f- f- first of all, I mean, it, it's recognized ever since the ancient Greeks that it has this power over us. Um, I, I think what I, I look at is. Um, first of all, some of the early experiences in life that probably may account for some of the elements. Now, I am at pains to say you have to look at the whole musical experience, not just one element um, to understand it, but looking at, for example, if we look at early uh, mother-baby um, interactions and the musicality of the mother-baby relationship, it's, it's, it's that's one of the most, I think, uh, important uh, Bits of scaffolding for our subsequent musical uh listening and, and ability to respond. You just hear a mother when it's going well, a mother and a baby, there is the musicality, what has been called communicative musicality from by researchers. You know, you hear the mother go, ooh, ah, wow, ooh, up, you know, and they ooh, that's lovely. Ooh. Daniel Stern calls that uh affect attunement or vitality affects the ups and downs the shape of the 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 reaction between the mother and the baby um, and of, of course babies also all the current research is that babies have phenomenal ability to pick up on sounds they can detect differences in phonemes in in, in musical pitches and little elements of music and like chinese urdu all the kind of patterns that adults uh, by the age uh, really can't. So uh, before the age of nine months, they can pick up on all these uh, differences. By about the age of nine months, they tend to focus on their maternal language only, or maybe if they're bilingual on two languages, and babies lose that ability. So they're exquisitely adapted to the sound environment. So that's one whole area. I don't know if you want to explore that a bit more, but that's one major area, I think, that accounts for the, at a deep level, for some of the uh, our, our responses to music, it really goes to the heart of our being.
1: Sure, no, that makes a lot of sense to me because one of the things that I like about music is the interactions, including you know, among the pieces in an orchestra, for instance, or if it was a rock band, you know, how one instrument might play off another, different sensibilities. So I love that. What about what about movement? Because I bring that up in part because when I look at how we take in the world vision and hearing are probably because the other senses are more intimate and you know touch and taste and so forth so sight and sound are so powerful to how we comprehend the world and when i use eye tracking to understand how we take in visuals it's movement that makes such a difference and of course music has movement as well do you yes. want to talk about that angle
0: yes i mean that's the element of the essence of or well, certainly tonal music i mean after the second world war there was a whole fashion for serialism which thankfully has kind of passed us <laughs> by um it's still there as an interesting phenomenon but when i was a boy and a young man you had to be a serialist or you you know you weren't a serious musician thankfully that's all gone and we're back to beauty now but certainly with tonal music uh, all the great tonal music move, it moves on one note needs to another, and there's an impulse and a movement that takes you along. The great symphonists are able to do that. In terms of what you said, Dan, about the perform- musical performance, whether that be jazz musicians or orchestral players, that kind of interaction that, well, it's called musical entrainment, the ability to pick up through the body, really, um, interactions and uh, in a close way is absolutely fundamental to uh, musicians, a friend of mine um calls it e s p basically uh <laughs> sure. I mean, recently i don't know, i don't know about you, you know in the states uh, we have promenade concerts here and um where it goes on for july August the beginning of September incredibly powerful uh, uh concerts where a, a number of the audiences stand up you can stand i've been there it's uh it's part of the promenade. Uh, experience going back over 100 years um it's of course because of covid it was cancelled but they just literally have started via the television having broadcasts with the musicians you know suitably distance um and nobody at the royal Albert hall listening as such but we can watch and a friend of mine was in the symphony orchestra and he he said it was the most powerful experience and strange because you know (laughs) you had to you not didn't have your your musical friends so close, but you picked it up as he called it by e s p you know you know you you feel you somehow sense your colleagues it's a very important bit of of, of being a musician, I think, and it links to this in part this early communication, the powerful early communication I think.
1: Sure, and that would certainly tie into jazz musicians and how they play off each other, or I happen to be a a fan of NBA basketball, and I'm not the first person to suggest the five people in the court are like five jazz musicians, each taking taking their leads or their solos as it may be. I want to go back to some point early in the book when you're talking about those who have tried to analyze the relationship between music and emotion. And you mentioned two terms, the emotivist and the cognitivist. Can you just elaborate on those, and then I have a follow-up question?:
0: Yeah, well, I mean, basically, some what I'm saying in some ways is controversial. Um, there's a whole school of musicology that just say there's no emotion in the music. Um, it's just form. It's music is music. It's nothing more than that, So it's kind of m- more like a, a cognitive experience. And, and there are others, however, that do say that, of course, music um, does I- I elicit emotion. I think these those are the two big kind of schools of thought, the emotive and the cognitive type of uh, approach to understanding music. I, I think either it really, especially these days, are, are very limited because the, the more we understand the emotion, the more we realize, particularly... Not only from my experience as an analyst, but also neuroscience now, uh, emotion and cognitive, the cognitive element go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Um, they're certainly integrated. Emotion and, and, and thought are constantly integrated. Um, so I think this is a rather narrow view of seeing things. This is why I was trying to start with that, but say, well, we have to go beyond these these uh, kind of definitions to more. Uh, integral uh, 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 and whole approach to understanding the musical experience.
1: Well, I'm certainly glad you did that because when I I read that in the book, and I knew you were going to push beyond that, but the notion that music merely expresses emotion without inducing them seems to me, I have to confess, in my case, literally crazy, just, just, just like traditional economics left out the role of emotions, which is why, thank God, we got behavioral economics uh, aided in part by the same thing you're talking about, the breakthroughs in neurobiology and the confirmation that cognition and emotion, you know, are inevitably wedded together and you can't possibly get rationality exclusively onto itself.
0: No, absolutely. I think it was a phase, probably post-war phase, particularly when people were trying to be cool and, and like music had to be serial had to kind of get rid of its beauty and, and tonal uh, elements but I, I think things are much more complex in terms of economics of course gull um you, you know uh if, in fact uh, the idea of animal spirits was um very much part of the uh classical economics you know
1: yeah no and in, in fact uh you know uh You know, psychology and economics were really kind of studied together initially, and that made a lot more sense than what the the dry period that ensued after a while. Let's go to another term you and I discussed before we got on this particular interview, which was the concept of close listening and how this ties into psychoanalysis. That seems to me a a worthwhile thread to follow, particularly given the book's subtitle.
0: Yes, I mean, that's certainly very much um, one of the main themes, the the idea of – Close listening, both um, which comes from listening to music, and but also from as as a psychoanalyst, one's listening, particularly at the moment. I have to say, because of COVID, I'm having to listen to my patients on the phone. I, I do some Zoom for, for a certain number of people and families, but my analytic patients, I'm listening on the phone. <laughs> so, one was very much even more tuned to to the listening experience. But you know, kind of close listening to the, the music, really, of the words and of the discourse, or of the lack of music, of the quality of the communications, and hearing the kind of ups and downs and the um, emotional tonality is absolutely part and parcel, I would say, of psychoanalytic work. This is why I think musical uh, listening and musical understanding and psychoanalytic understanding can come together. I mean, a uh, somebody who's who's read my book who's a uh, mark wigglesworth who's a conductor felt he really responded to that because he his work is all about uh, close listening to to the orchestra and has to listen and then respond and it's it's to and fro he, he felt and i i agree that that there's not enough of this focus close listening to people you know people talk at people rather than listen to them in an interactive intersubjective way so i the, the uh, experience of, of being in, in touch with musicians who have to, in order simply to um, do their work, have to have this very entra- entrainment, this entrained, close, mutual listening in order to uh, perform a work that makes emotional and uh, musical sense. It's something that analysts can learn from, but I think it goes beyond that. I think that we've, we tend to have lost that skill
1: Yeah, well, there's a wonderful cartoon from the New Yorker where two women are talking, one says to the other, but enough about me. What do you think about me? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I think we've all been there. Or in the Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Bierce, bore someone who talks when you want them to listen. Um, <laughs> also very apropos. So I'm curious. This might be a tough question, but you know, you talked about listening, and of course, it's not just what we hear; it's also what we don't hear, or the the interruptions, the silence. I'm sure, as a in, in your profession, you have to very much take those into account. Is there any music that you might suggest to us does a particularly good job with the the pauses, the interruptions, the silence, as it were?
0: Um, well, I think any any great music has that element. But um, one, of, I, perhaps, I can kind of think of an experience that one was of, one of the key factors that led me to write the book, which was listening to a Shostakovich quartet, the number eight, which he dedicated to. Um, the victims of fascism and the war it was shostakovich's one of the most personal personal pieces of his music i i heard it in a small setting um the string quartet and for some and for various reasons i was literally in the front row with hardly any gap between me and them and i i it was an overwhelming experience in which I, for the first time, I understood it, the way they looked at each other, the way they clearly were listening, interacting at a bodily level as well as uh, intellectual level, and, and their looks and so on, and then you, you hear the music and the music that has this incredible uh, what has its pauses, it has its lyricism, has its despair at the end as well, and yet something positive comes through, uh, as well as the uh, middle movements where there's a kind of craziness. Um, to it. It was a time when Shostakovich was, on the one hand, deeply depressed because he had to become part of the communist party in order to survive, um, f- officially, having avoided it for years, and was feeling despairing. And yet, despite the despair, something else comes through. Uh, I, I certainly would recommend that as you, know, you can't get away from the emotions uh, and, and, and how they come through.
1: Well, that, that, that's an interesting context. I did not know that because, of course, uh, communism, in many cases, was all about the we, supposedly, and not the I. Um, so that, that's interesting to me. Uh, many years ago, I worked for the Minnesota Orchestra, and uh, that meant I had some good tickets, including front row once to Yo-Yo Ma. So there's, oh, yes, there's, there's yes. nothing like being up close with a, a wonderful ensemble or a particular musician, for instance. Um, there there are so many tangents in the book well worth pursuing, and I'd like to hit on at least a couple of these in relationship to music that they, they might evoke for you. One is uh, dreams or dream state and that relationship to music, including trances. Uh, yes. Anything you'd like to say on, on that line of thought? Well, I mean, the, the,
0: the music is not... Uh, it has its own structure. It's not a language as such, um, but, but music and language have certain similarities. But the fact that music... Um, doesn't have a clear narrative structure, and it, I think it also is linked to basic emotions that go back pre-verbally. It's not surprising that it, has, that it conveys at times this sense of another world. Other cultures, many cultures, uh, not just uh, Western cultures, talk about um, the other world, worldliness or of, of music, or it could get you in touch with that trance states there's been quite a lot of work in the particularly in the past on trance states which can be triggered by um not just um music but dance i mean the two kinds of trance states generally there's the possession in which you the uh trancey, I don't know what do you call them, trancey, <laughs> um, gets in touch with the spirit world um, through a group process. Usually there are musicians, there are observers, and those are the well, the celebrants, I suppose they're called, really. They lose touch with con- ordinary consciousness and get into a really more in touch with their unconscious and certainly lo- in a kind of hypnotic state. This, oh, that's possessive trance, which often is accompanied by drums or melodies there's the other kind which is shamanic trance with a shaman uh, in which the shaman visits the spirit world and brings back information from the spirit world to the um the trance uh the celebrants i mean the sli- two kind of slightly different uh approaches depending on the culture but um we all can kind of get into a trance state, don't we, when we listen to great music? At times, we kind of go off into the zone or into some uh, other world, particularly when when with great music, whether that be Wagner or Mozart or Tchaikovsky, or you know, there's so many that uh, once you lose lose your ego control and relax and let go, uh, you, you're a great jazz lover. I, I love jazz too, and I mean when You know, when they're in the zone, when really they're letting themselves go, this kind of almost trance like state.
1: Um, So I'm listening to your answer. I'm thinking about free association that I start to think about because my neighbors are both uh, psychologists. uh, And they talk about obviously patients who kind of reach a dead end for a moment. They're trying to figure out how to break through further. Have you ever brought music into one of your your sessions uh, as a way to try to propel things forward, including into a dream state or more free association or getting someplace new?
0: No, I, I, I mean, <laughs> um, I've talked about music and I, I've had a couple of musicians or very musical people in therapy or analysis. And it's been interesting that they are often very shy about bringing that part of themselves, you know, and I, I kind of encourage them to do so. But with adults, no, I'm just, you know, I have them on the couch. It's, on the one hand, it's a very... Verbal, uh, verbal auditory world you know you don't see the person's head you know face you just have their head and it's a verbal well i do see children and um for, uh, i used to for treatment now many for assessment and i certainly occasionally music has come up or kind of drum music and i have available you know toys and and that sometimes uh comes into the into the into the session. But I've never actually gone as far as uh, literally using music. I'm not a music therapist. Uh, that in itself is a very interesting, separate uh, discipline, uh, which can be very powerful, particularly actually for young people, I've heard. Um, who can Those who, who self-harm, those who are depressed, they can feel more alive in music. It's less threatening. In a non-verbal way to be able to bodily communicate through through the musical instrument. I've heard about that. I don't practice it. There.
1: Okay, just was curious because I, I know of art therapy and find it quite intriguing. Yes. Um, kind of a parallel in a, in a manner speaking to the baby mother interactions. We know that some of the inspiration for music can also come from the animal world from those sounds. Yes. Uh, what 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 you what might you say or offer us on that line?
0: Well, there's a whole stream of thought really around evolutionary thought and looking at animals and the obviously the similarities or the differences i mean charles darwin had a theory of sexual selection that uh, the origin of music and its power was due to to uh, the charm effect of music he, he based this on observations for example of bird song and how birds charm you know their mate To come up close so they could actually uh, have babies. Uh, uh, So he kind of used that and extended that. And and there have been modern people, Jeffrey Miller was one, who've said this is a definite evolutionary root of the uh, importance and power of music. It's kind of rather attractive because you can see music does have a sexual buzz. You know, you can see it in in, uh, young people when they're in bars, when they're kind of dancing just dance as well dancing music there is a certain kind of endorphin release <laughs> sexual buzz but to actually go and say that that is the main cause it does leave out the other uh, cooperative aspects of music which is not to do with sexual selection so it's a very limited explanation but we are animals and there is a biological basis uh, and indeed a neurological basis of some of our musical abilities We can see that when people who 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 are born with congenital amusia and and simply can't understand music it's at about 2 3% of people and it's quite a, a disability so there must be some truth in in what darwin's uh, darwin's saying but I, I can't see it as is the whole truth at all, really.
1: Sure, although I admit, in my case, I've used music as a mating selection because if I didn't agree with someone's taste in music, <laughs> uh, music matters to me so much that I might be less inclined to date them if I thought well, they I, perhaps had I'm old tolerance. Yes, I yeah. must be.
0: I must be because I'm the only one in my family, really. Although one now does, one of my children has finally seen the light. I've got several children. I'm seem to be the only one who really is a complete Wagner freak, and. Um, and classical music, so everybody else likes music, but it's not my, not mine. But um, so I just, you know, have to accept that. <laughs>
1: sure. Well, I guess I'm thinking of a woman who's who thought the, uh, you know, the, the height of rock music was Peter Frampton, and I, I didn't quite agree. Shall we say? Well, the certain, um, yes, the certain.
0: I suppose you have to say <laughs> certain things <laughs> make one probably incompatible. But I like. I'm not. You know, my my book is is about mainly western classical music and yes, cult- yes. music of different cultures i'm not a great i'm not knowledgeable about um popular music but i love to personally I have to say dancing to popular music uh, i i love that the beat and, and just dance sheer dancing so uh, that's something else
1: sure, sure well just likewise if i was potentially dating someone that never heard of rembrandt or chopin i might be inclined to move on that's true but uh, that's yeah. true um, you had mentioned the composer Thomas, and I'll probably get his last name wrong, Ades, yes. who wrote about music and how it, it really animates based on working with stability and instability. I found that fascinating. Also, his quote, writing music is like trying to draw the face in the fire. I just love that statement. Yes. Um, let's go back to stability and instability, however. What might you say there?
0: Well, he's a very, of course, he's a very interesting and important and and, and well uh publicized um, composer and conductor, Thomas Ades. Very interesting. He, he's written some fascinating operas, um, which most of which are definitely worth seeing. Um, and he he's, he he's one of those few musicians who are quite explicit about uh, and able to talk about their process. You know, musicians often aren't necessarily the best because they're so able to communicate through music. They don't necessarily, unless they're say conductors or interpret, um, aren't, aren't necessarily great at explaining, but he, he, he has this wonderful way of explaining and talking about himself. Well, I mean, if you think of, of musical uh, pitches or notes, uh, A, B, you know, one th- thing follows another, follows another, already one's, one's in a different world. It isn't an acoustic world, it's a kind of what Roger Scruton really calls acousmatics, an imaginary world you know music is where is it you know where does it exist <laughs> it's, out, it's out there somewhere in there somewhere it's in another world a kind of world of appearances in some way um so Ades talks about how his his ear what he's listening to he has one let's say one one musical pitch leads to another one and it leads to another one and and he's looking for the connections but also disruptions and the discontinuities, Um, especially these days. I mean, you know, we have to be able to, composers have to be able to not only write beautifully, but also to somehow encompass disruption and difficulty and dissonance uh, in in ways that have to respond to the modern world. Um, the, The interaction between consonants and dissonance has been fundamental to all tonal music since, particularly since the classical period, not long before but I think the modern world, I suppose, and Thomas Adès represents this. Has to we're trying to trying to extend the tonal language to the point uh, where it can encompass more disruptive elements without going as far as serial, pure serialism, where we just lose it these days most listeners. Um, his idea about seeing the the shape in the fire, I think it's about that sense that. The music is in this imaginary world. It's in the world of appearance. It's in the world of uh, imagination. So, where is it? How can you grasp it? It's, it's fascinating. You can grasp it. You can, once you put the music, you know, when the, when it's in the instruments, when it's in the orchestra, it's made concrete. It's made manifest. But as a composer writing it down, it's in this imaginary world.
1: And there was one other composer. I mean, that was that was great. That was very interesting to listen to. Roger Sessions, uh, you also mentioned another composer, American in this case, talking about the principle of progression, about association, also about relief, including one major dominant contrast. Uh, is there any music that uh, Roger's principles bring to mind for you or things you might want to say regarding those? Uh, I'm try- trying to think, really. Um, well. I mean Bolero in progression is the the obvious pat answer there, but, Rebels there, but Bolero, yes, yeah.
0: yes, yes. Um, I mean, I I mean so much of, in a way, so much of music has those those different elements. Um, one can think of well, if going back to Bach of all people, um, you can think of imagine the opening of Saint the Saint John Passion, uh, where you have. Uh, incredibly powerful uh, uh, consonants and dissonance. And uh, in a way, I think I'd recommend that as a way of of, of illustrating what he is saying um, using really, you know, quite class, well, Baroque musical language. It doesn't require modern language. Um, I think that's a, definitely worth hearing. It's also... Um, Bach has an incredible way of sustaining emotion. And um, in a way, not only in the, in the St. John Passion, but in the beginning of the, the Kyrie of the B minor, minor Mass, the latter goes on for it's 15 minutes, in which this sustained, powerful emotion, uh, I mean, that's incredible, really, he's able to do
1: that. The uh, Brandenburg Concertos, by the way, was one of the first pieces I love. And just the other day I heard that apparently that was essentially like a job application. (laughs) Uh, uh, Quite a good good job of the job application. Well,
0: he could just, yeah, well, those days it was, yeah, you just, you know, you had to pen it. Otherwise you didn't eat. So, (laughs) yeah. You know, so,
1: so before before we close here, I, I just have to go to, you know, what is maybe some of your favorite pieces or favorite pieces that you think also play off emotions or, you know, body certain emotional reactions for you in, in really interesting ways? Yes.
0: Well, one of my favorite to it, and I, I, when I've given talks on, on uh, uh, psychoanalysis and music, I've been able to actually give examples. And one of the examples I give is, Schubert's song, his very er, one of his very earliest songs, called The Earl King or El König, um, in which a boy is carried through a forest with his father on horseback, terrified and entranced uh, by the words and song of this demon, Earl King, who tries to lure the boy to his dark world. And this, it's a Goethe poem, and it has this dreamlike quality. And you have this hammering of the piano, and three voices, which is fascinating. You have the voice of the father, who's trying to reassure the boy it's all right. And they're on their way back home through a storm. You have the voice of the demon, come to me, come to me. I just come to my hall, you know, everything will be lovely. And the boy saying, help, my father, my father, my father. It's an incredible unification of all these three voices with the piano, accompaniment which kind of represents all kinds of things, the horse's hooves, the heartbeat of the father, the fear of the son, and the knocking of the door of fate or death. I think it's a wonderful illustration, I suppose, of a number of things I've been trying to explore in the book, really.
1: Wonderful. Well, our, our time is about up. I want to thank you again for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 18, Touching the Soul, Musical and Psychoanalytical Listening with Roger Kennedy. To check out other episodes or my books or appearances on other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at the obligatory three W's, sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Roger, feel free to email me at dhill@sensorylogic.com. At and if you've enjoyed the episode, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. As we've been talking about music, I can't resist going to Walter Pater's famous comment, all art constantly aspires toward the condition of music for while in all other kinds of art it is possible to distinguish the matter from the form yet it is a constant effort of art to obliterate it until next time be kind and stay safe